I'm Talmadge Boston, and welcome to this edition of Cross-Examining History, where we explore American history and thought leadership through conversations with leading authors. Today, I'm interviewing Jeff Schessel, an emerging first-rate historian, and we'll be talking about his new book, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War which came out June 1, 2021. We did the interview in front of a large virtual audience on August 4, 2021. Enjoy. Now I want to introduce our uh, guest speaker, Jeff Schessel. Jeff has written this fabulous book that we're going to be talking about, Mercury Rising, John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. Uh, Just came out recently. Those of you who participated in the program with Julia Swig on her Lady Bird Johnson uh, new book uh, can thank her because she was the one who introduced me to Jeff. Uh, Jeff, is uh, quite accomplished in many arenas. He's a Rhodes Scholar. Uh, he uh, was a speechwriter for President Bill Clinton uh, during the second uh, Clinton term. Uh, he's written wonderful uh, presidential biographies. The first one was Lyndon Johnson, Robert Kennedy, and the feud that defined a decade. The second one was called Supreme Power, Franklin Roosevelt versus the Supreme Court. And now we have a John F. Kennedy uh, profile in this wonderful new book, uh, Mercury Rising. So, uh, Jeff, uh, welcome to this uh, largely Texas audience. Alex, thank you so much. Um, I'm so grateful to you for for inviting me to to join all of you. And I want to thank the sponsors as well. It's good to see all of you out here. And this is fantastic turnout for for the middle of a, a workday so i'm i'm grateful to all of you for for turning out you know i talmage i don't think i mentioned this but one of the very first stops on my very first book tour for that book you mentioned about lyndon johnson and robert kennedy mutual contempt was in dallas naturally enough um made the the rounds i was in in austin and houston and, and dallas and uh i have fond memories of that that trip um and uh I wish uh, I could uh, be joining all of you in person, but I'm, I'm glad for the chance to talk to you uh, on the screen. Well, good. Well, let's uh, start at the beginning in terms of the Mercury program. April 9, 1959, the seven Mercury astronauts are announced at a, at a press conference and nobody knew who they were in advance. And for the most part, they were unknown people. And in the middle of the post-Sputnik space race furor, they became instant uh heroes uh and so jeff has there ever been anything like that in american history where a small group of strangers became instant national heroes like happened to the mercury astronauts you know i'd be hard pressed to come up with an example um that that matches at all the the focus the hype or the the meaning of that that introduction because of course, this wasn't just a, a group of guys who won a big prize, which they had, which is to get selected as astronauts. But they were setting forth into this this incredible 
new territory uh, that had been unexplored, of course, by, by human beings. Uh, and, and so there was a sense that what they were willing to do, what they were about to do was, was really beyond people's imagination. And uh, the, the response at that press conference that you mentioned, Talmadge, was so over-the-top crazy. I mean, reporters just rushing the, the stage, climbing over each other, literally elbowing each other out of the way to get closer to these, these pilots. Um, Wally Shira, one of the Mercury 7, turned to one of the others and he said, we haven't even done anything yet. Uh, but of course, what they had done was that they'd been selected to to be to be astronauts, and that was a huge, huge deal in in, in the circumstances, particularly given uh, the sense of anxiety that had been building up in the country. And you made reference to this in the wake of Sputnik. I mean, this April 1959 was was a good year and a half, almost two years after Sputnik, and the United States was falling. It seemed further and further behind in the race. Mm-hmm. And what's the number? How many people applied? to become Mercury astronauts, and ultimately seven were chosen. I forget what an incredible distinction it was. I think, um, you know, it's a good question. I don't have the numbers exactly in front of me. There were phases of kind of eligibility. And so there were uh, a few hundred that were considered initially, which, I mean, of course, if they had just opened the, the, the gates to applications, there would have been many, many thousands. But it was a pretty select group that were even considered in the first place. They had to be military test pilots, number one, and they had to be military test pilots that met a, a certain list of criteria in terms of their age and the kind of experience that they had. Uh, they were supposed to uh, have a degree, a college degree uh, that ruled a, a bunch of folks out. Glenn kind of, John Glenn kind of skirted that requirement a little bit because he had actually left college when he uh, when he enlisted after Pearl Harbor. And he had gone back and he had completed most of the, or all of the requirements to get his degree, but hadn't received his degree yet. So he was sort of waved in because they felt that that was sufficient. But um, so there were, there were phases to this, to the selection. Now, from that very first press conference, your book makes clear that John Glenn stood out. Uh, from from the other six, he was the only one who had some national notoriety by reason of having set the speed record of flying an airplane across the country. But uh, what was it about John Glenn that, that made him different and better, at least in the eyes of the media? Well, you're, you're exactly right. Um, they introduced the seven of them. And only one of them was already known to all of the reporters in the room, and that was Glenn. And it was for the reason that you mentioned. Glenn had um, he had been an incredibly accomplished combat pilot. He wasn't famous as a result of that, but he had been. He was actually the most decorated combat veteran of all of the, the Mercury Seven. Not even all of them had actually flown in combat before. Alan Shepard, who became, as you know, the first American in space, had not fought in in the war and in either war, World War Two or Korea, Glenn had fought in both. But it was his success as a test pilot in 1957, that transcontinental speed record that you mentioned, that that put him on the front page of every newspaper in the country and wound up getting him a stint on Name That Tune on CBS in the evenings. And he was on week after week, you know, in his dress whites one week and his dress blues the next week, just charming the nation. There were tributes made to him in, in the United States Congress. So Glenn was a first order celebrity. Um, and when he walked out on that stage, the reporters immediately turned to him. But it wasn't just that, as you're saying, Talmadge, it was that there was a quality to Glenn that you didn't see in, in the other astronauts. He had a, 
an ease, a kind of natural ability in front of the cameras that none of the rest of them did. They were all a little bit stiff. They were a little bit uncomfortable. They were kind of a little too cool. But Glenn, he he just sat down, leaned forward uh, at the, the dais that they had set up there, and he began to tell stories. And he talked about his family, and he talked about his faith. Uh, he, he talked about uh, his, his belief, his, his love for his country. Um, and all of that stuff would seem to be fairly standard fare. And yet the others were not prepared for that kind of press conference. They were pilots. They wanted to talk about flight. And that was that. And they were deeply uncomfortable and actually resentful of Glenn um, for seeming to change the rules of the game. They thought, you know, if this is going to be part of this competition to see who gets to be the first in space, I don't like the way this is shaping up. Mm -hmm. Now, as your book uh, points out very dramatically, John Glenn had ferocious ambition and self-possession. One of his childhood friends said, quote, I never saw anybody who wants as much as this man wants. And you say he had, quote, the kind of absolute confidence that makes a fighter pilot believe there's not another pilot or plane in the world who can beat him. So he grew up in this small Ohio town of a thousand people. Where did this extreme ambition and self-confidence come from? You know, it's it's one of those those great mysteries. It's hard. I'd love to be able to point to something and say, right there, that's where it came from. But I think I, I can say a couple, I can offer a couple of ideas. Um he had a, a wonderful family life. He had a lot of support from from both of his parents. Um, he uh, he had a loving father and a, and a mother who was deeply in, invested in in building him up and and allowing him to become whatever he wanted to be. Uh, ironically, one thing they didn't want him to become was a pilot. And when he went to them uh, as a teenager and he said he wanted to get pilot training, wanted to get flight lessons, um, his father said, "Well, we might as well just take you out and bury you." They just thought planes were unsafe. Keep in mind, this is the this is the 1930s, and uh, Glenn kept at it, and he wound up uh, 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 enlisting in something called the Civilian Pilot Training Program, which was on the eve of World War II. Uh, the government decided that it probably better go out and train some pilots because it was going to need them, and so Glenn, with the help of one of his teachers, was able to persuade his parents that. Uh, this was a good uh, course for him to take, uh, especially because the industry was growing and there would be good jobs in it. But but actually, I, I mentioned his teacher for another reason. He had a couple of, of teachers who uh, were, were very invested in him as well and really opened his eyes in two different directions. And one was science and engineering. And the other was politics and public affairs. And so while Glenn was seemed at the time to be singularly focused on flight, he also always had an eye to the bigger picture when he was growing up, and more so than, than any of the other astronauts, uh, which is one reason why it was clear when he stepped out on that stage that this, this could be a future politician. It was clear from day one. Yeah. I should have said this at the beginning, but I want to tell our audience that if any questions occur to you that you'd like to ask Jeff, please enter them in the chat box and we'll get to as many of them as we can, either at the end or if they flow into kind of what I'm going to be trying to cover, I'll, I'll work them in that way. But uh, don't be reluctant to, to ask questions. Now, Jeff, uh, 
as of the late 1950s, looking toward the 1960 presidential election, after the Russians had sent Sputnik up in 1957, which caused America to panic, and President Eisenhower acted totally disinterested in there being a space race or America participating in a space race, all of a sudden, who springs into action but Lyndon Johnson? who, of course, was, had his eye on the 1960 presidential nomination, but, but he wanted to turn the space race into a political issue. And, of course, Johnson, in every respect, throughout his life, was a 100% political animal. So, so where do you come out in your final assessment of LBJ's contribution toward pushing the space agenda forward to the media and to the American people? I think Lyndon Johnson's role was absolutely pivotal. He was indispensable. He was the driver, really, more than Kennedy in many ways. And I, I think he he's, uh, you could call him the unsung hero of, of, of the U.S. space program, really. Um, and that is because he did step forward within 24 hours of Sputnik in the fall of 57 to assume leadership on the issue. And, of course... Dallas, you're absolutely right. He saw political opportunity here. And in fact, George Reedy, who maybe some of you know, who had been um, Johnson's press secretary, he wrote him a, a memo and said, plunge heavily into this one. It could get you elected president in 1960. And so Johnson plunged heavily into it. As he said, when he plunged, he plunged heavily. And by the fall, later in the fall of, of 1957, after the Soviets sent up a second Sputnik, which was much bigger than the first one, much heavier, which made it an even more incredible feat, really, than the first one, which was pretty tiny. Uh, Johnson convened hearings on Capitol Hill for weeks, and he really pounded the administration for its inaction, for being really slow to, it, I mean, it hadn't, I was going to say slow to recognize the threat. They still hadn't recognized the threat. They still hadn't acknowledged it. Uh, Eisenhower did not see Sputnik as being consequential. And Johnson made clear, and this was not pure political expediency, this was also a deep belief on Johnson's part and a lot of people's part, that this was a Cold War struggle of the first order. And as Johnson said repeatedly, if the Soviets control space, they can control life here on Earth. The discussion, and it wasn't just, again, Johnson, it was the military establishment, it was a lot of scientific experts who said that the Soviets ultimately would build a nuclear base on the moon that would lie outside the, the reach of U.S. defenses, that the Soviets would build a space station that would sit and just hang above the United States like a sword of Damocles, armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons. So Johnson said, we have to get into this fight. And he really, more than anyone, pushed the idea of creating a civilian space agency, NASA, to, to really coalesce all of the disparate efforts within the federal government and across the, the military branches. Mm -hmm. Now, for the first several years of the space program, and Eisenhower was a big part of this, there was real skepticism about whether there was truly a good reason to pursue it other than to beat the Russians and whether it was worth the cost, which was viewed as being exorbitant. And at a time when people paid attention to budgets and deficits, unlike today when nobody pays any attention to it at all, but uh, so in terms of what's the main reason for doing this and is it worth the cost, who was the person most responsible for giving the American people satisfactory answers 
to those questions? You know, in retrospect, it's, it's not all that clear that anybody gave satisfactory answers to those questions because the debate is, is still ongoing. As I've gone out to talk about this book, um, people have, have asked whether this was all worth it. Uh, and even looking back at the incredible accomplishments of the U.S. space program, we know, of course, what they didn't know at the time, which is that we would successfully get to the moon repeatedly. And we would learn uh, things about the origins of, of the moon and of the earth and, and even of, of the solar system more broadly that we, we never understood before. Even knowing all of that today, people still question whether it was worth it. And so I, I think there were periods of time when there was a, a consensus that developed that action needed to be taken in the face of the Soviet threat. And so I think that, that Johnson was instrumental, as we've been discussing. Kennedy later was instrumental. He kind of came to the issue later, really, when he was running for president in 1960. He had said very little about space up to that point. He had very little interest in it, but he understood its power as a symbolic issue. I mean, his whole argument, as many of you know, in 1960 was that America had lost its, its, its initiative. It had lost its drive, that we needed to get America moving again was the great, was the great slogan. And one perfect symbol of America's stagnation was the fact that the Soviets were beating the pants off us in space, one thing after another, satellites, animals in orbit, pictures of the far side of the moon. The Soviets were dominating at this cutting edge of science and engineering. So Kennedy understood that that spoke volumes about what he was trying to say about the leadership uh, or lack of leadership of Eisenhower and Nixon. So it was a very effective issue for him. But when he succeeded in, in getting elected to office, he didn't really have a plan for what to do to get America into the race and into first place. And it fell pretty quickly down this list of priorities. But it was ultimately, and we can talk about this, it was ultimately the Cold War that made this a front burner concern for him and a recognition that whatever Soviet military capabilities might or might not be ultimately in space, the world was watching. And the world could see that the Soviets were beating the pants off us in space. And the world was inferring that the United States was falling behind more broadly in science, in technology, and militarily, which wasn't true, but it sure seemed that way. Mm -hmm. Now, getting back to the seven Mercury astronauts, uh, as a great sentence, you say, quote, the fate of the seven Mercury astronauts lay in the hands of engineers who were not yet done finding ways to fail. Of course, your book talks about the many failures, how many liftoffs were set and had to be postponed again and again and again. Failure, failure, failure. Uh, and among the seven, they knew that it was inevitable that one of them would die. It turned out to be Gus Grissom, and of course it was after Mercury, yeah. and Chuck Yeager, who broke the sound barrier, thought that being one of the seven Mercury astronauts was a fool's errand. So getting back to this selection process, you've got all these hundreds of people, who, who men at the time, who want to be astronauts. How did they evaluate each applicant's capacity for physical courage to look danger in the eye, knowing there's a really... And your book is incredible in terms of talking about the specifics of John Glenn and the conversations he had with his wife and his children before he took off. Like, I may not come back, 
So, so, so how, how do you test for that kind of physical courage, which somebody had to have given the circumstances? It's a great, it's a great question and a really important question because it was so, so central to the to selection process for the reasons that you said. I mean, I think before I answer that, just to pause for a moment to talk about the incredible danger. I think one of the difficulties in writing history like this is that we know the outcome. We know that John Glenn got back safely from his flight. We know that we got to the moon by the end of the decade. Um, There were tragedies along the way, Apollo 1 you mentioned. Um, But we know that essentially this was a a tremendous success story in the history of humankind. Um, None of that was evident at the time. And they were asking these these pilots, not really to fly anything. They were asking them to be strapped into this capsule that was stuck at the top of an ICBM and shot into space. And so while they were all used to mortal danger, I mean, they had all been either in combat or military test pilots, or in Glenn's case, both. Uh, This was a whole new order of things. And they stood there and watched at Cape Canaveral while these missiles exploded over their heads. They were brought out with fanfare and the press was there. They were given hard hats and they sat in the bleachers and they watched this thing go up and explode. And they turned to each other, gallows humor, and and Shepard said to to the others, he said, well, I hope they fix that thing before they ask us to ride on it. But they understood. I mean, this this was a potentially very deadly business. And um, they, uh, as I reported in the book, privately, the, the seven agreed, and you referenced this, they agreed that one of them was going to die before this this program was over. And it was just a question of who and when. Mm-hmm. And uh, somebody's number was going to come up. They'd all, as test pilots, they'd seen their fellow pilots dying all, all around them. I mean, it was almost, a, you know, not a daily occurrence, but it was part of their lives. But again, this was a whole other order of things. So how do they test for this? Well, nobody really knew, knew how you screened. For this sort of stuff. And so they put them through the most elaborate uh, testing uh, that probably any human being has ever been subjected to, both physical and psychological, because they wanted to see if they could endure physically all sorts of extremes. And if any of you, have, I'm sure you've all seen or read the, the, the right stuff, you, you have some sense of what they were put through. It was almost a kind of torture. I mean, for many of us, it would feel like torture, what they were asked to do, put in an isolation chamber that was anechoic. So your your uh, your your ba- sense of balance is, is totally off. People just fall down when they are put in a room like that. Um, hot, extreme hot heat, extreme cold, um, pain, all sorts of stuff just to see whether they would crack. Um, and psychologically, and this challenge t- goes to your question, they were lo- there's a reason that they picked a bunch of pilots who were all in their 30s, and in some cases, like Glenn's, in their late 30s, because they wanted people who had sort of been through it. And if they had been hot shots, as they all probably had been, they had maybe gotten some of the recklessness out of their system. And they were they were brave, but they were also experienced. And so they were selected for this. And yet, and yet, and this is a whole other topic, and we can get into this if you'd like, but... There was still a sense on the part of most of the engineers that the pilots couldn't be trusted and that this capsule should be designed to run on autopilot and that generally what the pilot should do was keep his hands to himself. There was even, and I'll just mention this and I want to hear your next question, there was even some discussion 
uh, in the late 1950s that if you were going to send human beings up in this thing, that you would shoot them full of sedatives beforehand so they didn't do anything dangerous. I mean, that was the feeling. So on the one hand, you're selecting these incredibly skilled, brave, tested test pilots. And on the other hand, you are trying to protect them from themselves. Well, that does set up my next question uh, in that, uh, as you said, all seven of the Mercury astronauts were spectacular pilots, but it didn't take long for them to realize that they'd been, that the NASA engineers wanted them to do almost no piloting in space. They did not want them to be the pilot in command. So is it fair to say that the astronauts were duped into joining the Mercury program? Uh, you know, I think I think it is probably fair to say that, that when they were brought in to see whether they wanted to apply, they were invitations were issued to, you know, as I said, a few hundred uh, pilots. They were brought to the Pentagon for a briefing and they were not told what it was about. And they sh they showed up in different. They broke them out into smaller groups and they, they briefed them. They said, here's what's going on um, and here's what we'd like you to do. But this isn't for everybody. And, uh, you know, you should think really seriously whether this is what you want to do. But they were told that they would be using their skills. They were told that they were going to fly these capsules. But in fact, that was not a consensus view within the new space agency. And a lot of these engineers that I mentioned came out of a, a division of, of the precursor of NASA um, called the, the NACA. And there was a division within it called the Pilotless Aircraft Research Division. And so a lot of these engineers had never worked with pilots at all before. They were designing a machine that was meant to work perfectly as a machine. And the pilot was considered by these engineers, as one of them put it, to be a problem child. Why was he a problem child? Because he wanted to do stuff, number one. And number two, because you had to keep him alive. And the challenge of keeping someone alive in space was one that they really, you know, they didn't know whether they would succeed in doing it. And it involved a whole lot more equipment and a whole lot more effort. So a lot of them would have been happy just to do away with the pilot altogether. So, yeah, I think it's fair to say that they were misled uh, on the way into the program. You alluded to this uh, a minute ago, but there was clearly quite a competition among the seven Mercury astronauts as to be who would be the first to go into space? And these are all alpha male times a thousand. Uh, and of course, anybody who ever saw the movie Top Gun can understand that, that personality. And no one wanted to be the first in space more than John Glenn. And yet uh, they chose Alan Shepard. So how did that happen? What were the circumstances that caused Alan Shepard to be chosen to be the first man in space over John Glenn. Well, on a certain level, you know, if I'm being if I'm being honest, the the decision made by Bob Gilruth, who was the head of the space task group, and it was his decision, will always remain something of a mystery. He did not write it down. There was not a memo that justified the decision. He simply announced it to the group after a process of weeks where he and others were reviewing all the data that they had accumulated over two years of training and all the impressions of, of the various people in the training program. And then Gilruth uh, kept his own counsel and made his decision. But I think based on the recollections of a lot of folks who were involved in, in the decision-making process, it seems that this is true, that 
the standouts among the seven were John Glenn and Alan Shepard. And that was clear from the beginning. They had the strongest personalities. Um, they were the most clearly in command of themselves, um, the most likely to, to lead. And so every one of the, the seven, as, as you said, was a top test pilot. Every one of them had a shot. Every one of them wanted to win. Um, but there was generally a sense that these were the two leading candidates. And when it came down to the, to, to the decision, it seemed that these were the two who were being considered. And yet the decision that comes out is not just that Alan Shepard is first, but that Glenn is made to be his backup, which was sort of adding insult to injury. And then at the same time, Bob Gilruth announced who would fly second. And it wasn't Glenn. It was Gus Grissom. And nobody had really thought that Grissom was a contender. And Glenn was made backup to Grissom. And beyond that, there were no decisions that were made. And so this was, um, honestly, I, I think it's not an overstatement to say that this was the most difficult period of, of Glenn's life. He was fully expected by the press and the public to be number one for all the reasons we were discussing before. He was expected by many within NASA to be the top pick. And he was passed over twice and not guaranteed that he was going to even fly third. And he really, um, he had a hard time with it. In fact, he refused to accept the decision. And he wrote a letter of protest to Bob Gilruth, who promptly ignored it. But I think that there was something else that was in play here. And it was that Glenn had always been the most willing of all of the astronauts to speak his mind to his so-called superiors. And we talked a little bit about this, this struggle between the astronauts and the managers over whether they were even going to get to work the controls in the capsule. Well, Glenn really led that fight, and he made himself pretty unpopular with a lot of NASA managers for his willingness to speak his mind. That never suited him that well. You know, I, I quote this in the book, and it's with respect to Glenn's later life as a politician. Uh, the New York Times, in a profile, referred to his prickly sense of integrity. Well, he showed that early on, and it did not sit well with everyone that he worked with. And so I think there was a sense that Glenn was you know pretty big for his britches all these covers of life magazine and all of these newsreels about him and um that maybe he needed to be put in his place somebody else was going to get this chance and he needed to get in line well you did not include in that answer something that you talk about at length in the book that i thought was was a big part of the reason and that was the seven astronauts were each given a questionnaire and, and say, well, you can't vote for yourself, but who do you think should be first in space? And they had broken into two groups, a group of two, John Glenn and Scott Carpenter, who, who we'll call the Boy Scouts, and a group of five led by Shepard who were out partying, drinking, womanizing, crazy, you know, top gun, jet fighter pilot activities uh, on in and out of planes. Uh, so talk about how that came out and, and whether that was part of the reason you believe that they picked Shepard over Glenn. Well, I think, um, so just focusing first on the story, which I'm, I'm glad you raised because it's an important one. And that is that um, in 1959, as you mentioned, they were selected in April and by the summer, by the fall, it was pretty clear that there was this divide in terms of how they filled their after hours. Um, and what they, you know, what they they did or didn't do at the at the bars and in the hotel rooms. Um, and uh, Glenn uh, was not shy about warning 
the other astronauts that this was going to lead to real trouble. And he said, look, this is no longer just a matter between you and, and your wives. If you are caught out doing something, uh, you know, that, that that is scandalous, it's going to be a discredit to the whole program and to the United States. And they might even cancel the program. There are critics of this program. And if we give them fodder to say that, that we made the wrong pit and these guys are not ready for prime time, well, it could jeopardize the whole program. Well, you can imagine how that went down with the top gun types. They were not interested in this kind of moralizing as they saw it. Glenn thought he was making a very practical point that, look, whether you guys like it or not, you are role models to the nation's children right now. And uh, you don't want to contradict that. So fast forward to the fall of, of 59, and they were on one of these trips that they would often take to go visit the contractors who were building components of the, of the, the, the booster rocket and the capsule and visiting local officials. They were in San Diego. And late one night, Alan Shepard uh, decided to, to go to Tijuana uh, across the border. And he met up with a woman who was not his wife. And he was followed by a reporter and a photographer. And they were prepared to run the story in a California newspaper. And word uh, got back to John Glenn. And he picked up the phone late at night. And he called the reporter. And he called the photographer. And he called the publisher of the newspaper. And he gave them all a speech. And he said, listen, we are at war with the godless communists. And you can go ahead and run this story, but you realize that you will do so against the national security interests of the United States. And they backed down. They backed down. They killed the story. Yeah, uh, that's, but uh, Lynn at least thought that this popularity uh, contest in terms of the poll, had been influential in the choice of Shepard. John thought, I've lost this because of a popularity contest, because I was one who stood up and said, we need to behave ourselves and act like heroes. And, and I lost this popularity contest, and that's, that isn't how we ought to pick who's the first guy in space based on who's the most popular among the seven of us. So uh, kind of go into whether, did, you, did Glenn misperceive that? Or, or, or was that right? That that really was an important factor. You know that that's that's a good question, and and I can't I can't give a definitive answer to it because again we don't know because Bob Gilruth never made clear. So they were asked to to fill out that form as you described, and uh, and then um, the decision came down the way it came down, and Glenn was sure that everybody had voted against him, which they had, except for Scott Carpenter. And he was sure that that was the deciding factor. Now, the latter part, we don't know about that. Was Bob Gilruth just interested as a matter of curiosity who the astronauts would vote for? Did he really give them a deciding vote in this question? Glenn was sure they had. There had to be a bad guy here. And and the bad guy, from his view, was the other five astronauts rather than the folks in charge at NASA. But it, it, it's never been clear. Um, and I wanted to, I'll tell you, I worked for years to try to find that smoking gun document that would uh, tell us whether this was or was not the deciding factor. But Glenn certainly thought so. And the divisions that opened up were, were meaningful to him. They put him at odds, not only with the, the other astronauts, but with their supporters in the NASA hierarchy. So it was problematic for Glenn whether or not it, it had a role in this decision. Yeah. Now, as between John Kennedy and Nixon in the in the extremely close presidential race of 1960, how important was the space race? 
as an issue. You know, space um, was was one of a, a list of items that, as I said before, showed the the inertia and the lack of initiative of, of the Eisenhower administration. I don't think there were many voters who went to the polls and made a decision on the basis of the space program. But it, it did have a, a kind of powerful, it was part of the gestalt. It was part of the feeling that America was, was falling behind in, and, and that this was going to have grave consequences in the global struggle between freedom and totalitarianism. Kennedy did a lot during that race, as I'm sure you know, to talk about the, the supposed missile gap that existed. In fact, it turned out, as Kennedy himself learned late in the campaign, uh, but early enough that he should have changed his, his tune, that the missile gap actually ran in favor of the United States, not in favor of the Soviet Union. But it was an article of faith for uh, not just Kennedy, but a lot of politicians and defense analysts that the U.S. was behind in the missile race. So he worked to conflate the missile gap with the space gap. Because, again, what were the, the, the Russian satellites going up to space on top of, on top of an ICBM? And so this was seen as a projection of military power. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, John F. Kennedy ultimately turned the American space program around by making the public commitment that our, our astronauts would get to the moon during the decade of the 1960s. What caused him to choose that strategy and objective uh, to make that commitment famously at uh, Rice Stadium in Houston? Well, so Kennedy, um, I, I mean, it is an interesting irony, isn't it? That Kennedy, who had been reluctant really to, to go all in to the space race at the beginning of his administration, only a few months later, in May of 1961, announces this incredible goal that we're going to not just get to the moon, but that we're going to do it by the end of the decade. And um, that journey happens not over the course of those four or five months. That journey happens over the course of a couple of weeks really beginning in April of 1961, when the Soviets shocked the world by sending the first man into space, Yuri Gagarin. And he orbits the Earth once, he comes back safely, they have a huge parade in Red Square, and the world is in awe that that someone has finally done it. Kennedy immediately went, he had been neglecting the issue, as I said, and he immediately goes into a scramble to try to figure out what the United States needs to do to get into this race. And he turns to Lyndon Johnson, and says, essentially, please figure this out. And Johnson already had a sense of what the answer needed to be. There was no way the United States was going to catch up to the Soviets in the near term. They were just too far ahead. Our program was too incremental. There were too many tests that needed to to be done. It was going to be a while. Everybody understood that. But by picking a goal that was big enough and expensive enough and far enough away, there was a chance that over the course of a decade, we could leapfrog the Soviets on the path to the moon. And so that was the logic of the lunar decision and also the powerful symbolism of going to the moon, which had always been a sort of dream of uh, anyone involved in, in space policy. So Kennedy set the goal, but he didn't have a tremendous amount of confidence that, that we were going to get there. He wasn't sure that it was possible. He wasn't sure that the Congress was going to continue to fund it for a decade. He wasn't sure that the public was going to be willing to support it for a decade. He was pretty hesitant. And the interesting thing, if you watch that speech 
The first one where he announced the goal, which was to Congress in May of 1961, before the Rice speech of 62. And he, he makes that statement that we're going to send a man to the moon by the end of the decade and return him safely to Earth. And then he diverges from the script and he begins to ad lib in an uncertain way. He kind of shuffles his papers and he hems and haws a little bit. He says, um, a lot. And as he said later to his White House aides, he was reading the room and they were not with him. He was looking at these members of Congress in front of him and he thought they're not buying this. And uh, he knew he had a sales job to do and uh, it was going to take him some time to do it. Uh, more than a year later at Rice, he was still selling the program. Well, uh, one of the questions from the audience from Sandy Chris, who I mentioned previously, talks about uh, how in time during the 60s, obviously the country did come together. And particularly as we headed for the moon, landed on the moon, there was this unity among Americans about we've done something spectacular. It took an incredible effort. And so Sandy says, what lessons can we take from that era in terms of the circumstances that caused people to become unified and talk about today where there's no unity whatsoever to, to try to see if we can transfer some of those ideas from the 60s over to, to where we are now. Well, you know, I would very much like to believe that that's possible. And I would very much like to believe that if we succeed in Artemis, which is the the program by which we're supposed to get Americans back to the moon, maybe by 2024. And we send, as, as the president has, has, has promised, uh, the first woman to the moon, the first person of color to the moon, that these will be exciting accomplishments that all Americans can rejoice in and take national pride in. Um, but I would be naive if I, 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 I didn't admit to some doubts um, that we can actually come together around national goals. I, I think that uh, it would be very hard uh, for, for uh, um, you know, some of our fellow citizens to celebrate these accomplishments if they happen under the president of an opposing party. And um, that's unfortunate, and I hope I'm wrong about that, um, because these really are accomplishments that are done not in the name of any, any party, but, but as the Space Act of 1958 said, for all mankind. And uh, you hope... Uh, uh, that that this is something that that people would recognize when when they see an incredible accomplishment. Uh, we can only hope at this point. Now, the subtitle of your book is John Glenn, John Kennedy, and the New Battleground of the Cold War. And uh, a real cool angle in your book is this developing relationship between Glenn and Kennedy. So uh, explain how that relationship came to be and, and you know, before and after uh, Glenn's orbit and, and the relationship Glenn and the Kennedys, because it really is uh, something that's an important focal point. It, it was a really important relationship. Um, and Kennedy understood very early on that, that John Glenn represented uh, what many people thought to be the, the best of America. He represented... On the one hand, uh, a set of traditional values that, that a lot of middle class, middle Americans, white Americans really held to and, and felt were at risk of being lost in the in the late 1950s and the early 1960s. And, and um, Glenn was openly, proudly patriotic. There was nothing cynical about him. He was openly a man of, of uh, deep faith, uh, Presbyterian, um, a man of family. 
Um, and so a very traditional figure. And yet here he was at, at the cutting edge of this, this new human adventure of, of sending people into space. And, and so he was this bridge between past and future. And uh, he also was so articulate and so charismatic that Kennedy saw in him really an ideal spokesman for the new frontier. I mean, what represented the new frontier more than the actual new frontier of outer space? And here was the guy who was going to be leading the, the charge. Yes, Alan Shepard went first. Yes, Gus Grissom went second. But Glenn got that first orbital flight. And it was with Glenn's flight that America really finally entered the race in a meaningful way and gained the credibility to continue to, to, to compete in the years forward. It was Glenn and his achievement that made the moonshot goal credible for the first time. So Kennedy saw the power of all that and also... Uh, increasingly became attracted to Glenn as a possible political figure. And by 1963, both John Kennedy and Robert Kennedy were urging John Glenn to, to leave NASA and to run for Senate from Ohio because they thought not only would he win, but he would help the Kennedy ticket in 64 in a state that, that trended Republican. <laughs> Before I get to the audience questions, I have a couple more that I just have to ask. Uh, during uh, Glenn's uh, orbit, three orbits around the Earth, the heat shield on his uh, space capsule came, laid, it came loose. And if it had broken off, he certainly would have been killed in reentry. And so here's this incredibly dangerous situation that's occurring. NASA and the engineers and all the people in control know what's going on. And yet they don't tell Glenn about it. Why? Well, Chris Kraft, who was the flight director, uh, believed that, that Glenn would, would panic. Now, of course, Glenn was chosen as an astronaut precisely because he was the kind of guy who didn't panic. And, you know, we don't have time, but, it, but it's in the book. I could tell you some stories from Korea that show that this is a guy facing what would seem like sure death, never panicked. Again, that's why he got the job. But this was part of this struggle for control between the folks on the ground and whoever happened to be up there outside the atmosphere. Um, so I'll just tell the story in brief, but I, I, I tell it in, in detail in the book. Um, so it turned out the heat shield didn't come loose, but they thought that it did because there was a warning light that went on after Glenn orbited the Earth three times, as you know. And after the first orbit, this light went on at mission control, indicating that the heat shield had started to separate from the rest of the capsule. And, and if that was the case, then he was going to be incinerated on the way through the atmosphere, 3,000 degrees heat. It, it would be all over. And so a debate began, a very panicked debate begins in mission control. Well, they began to ask Glenn indirect questions because they didn't want to tell him directly what was going on. And so they, they, they said things like, John, do you, do you hear any banging noises? Which is an absolutely incredible thing to be asked when you're in orbit, um, especially without a justification. He says, no, I, you know, I don't hear any banging noises. Later, they said, you hear a flapping sound? No, I don't, I don't hear a flapping sound. And this goes on really for the duration of his flight while they're having this panic debate on the ground about whether anything can be done. And they decide, as I, again, I tell the full story in the book, but they decide to, to tell him to leave something called the retro pack 
of jets attached to the heat shield. It was supposed to be jettisoned before the, the capsule came back through the atmosphere. It was not made of materials that could survive the heat of reentry. But they thought that maybe if they left it attached, it would hold the heat shield in place just long enough that he could get through the atmosphere safely. So they say, just before he comes back to Earth, they say, John, we want you to leave the retro pack attached. And he says, what is the reason for this? Do you have a reason? And they say, and this is verbatim, not at this time. Not at this time. And so he does as he's told, but um, he had, <laughs> they had some difficult conversations when he got back to Earth, I can tell you, about what uh, an astronaut ought or ought not be told when he's, when he's in orbit. Yeah. Now, Harry Truman once said, and David McCullough loves to give this quote, that um, in order to evaluate what's happened in history, it takes at least 50 years for the dust to settle. And it's now been a little over, or, or coming up next year is actually the 50th anniversary of, of the John Glenn's three orbits. So as we look back on that flight of his capsule Friendship 7, uh, what is John Glenn the man and his flight's ultimate historic significance? Well, I, it's, a, it's a great question and I can answer it in a couple of different ways. I mean, I think part of it is that um, and this is this is kind of corny, so I hope you'll forgive me. But but there really are American heroes, and uh, I know that you You're know it's often the what's that? You're forgiven. <laughs> it is often the the work of historians to to you know knock, or they see it as their work to knock people off their pedestal, and some of them deserve to get knocked off their pedestal. But I went into this. Look, I'm, I'm not trying to write a, a fan letter to John Glenn. I'm not trying to write a hagiography. I'm, I'm sticking to the facts. But I, I will say that I think the facts show that he was a man of incredible courage, incredible bravery, and also incredible dedication um, to uh, the, the, the values of this country and the, and the mission that his president had given him in that moment. He understood that this was not merely a scientific mission, um, although he was excited about the science, but that this was extremely consequential in reestablishing the credibility of the United States in this larger struggle between freedom and, and its opposite. And uh, I think he acquitted himself incredibly well in dangerous circumstances. I think the other thing that I, I think this, this story really brings home and is something worth keeping in mind is is that the, the, this is never going to be a glide path. That, uh, as, as John Kennedy said in that Rice University speech you mentioned, we do these things not because they're easy, but because they're hard. And uh, as, as uh, the new administrator of NASA, Bill Nelson, has often said, space is hard. And it continues to be. Uh, for all of our expertise and our decades of experience, it continues to be important it continues to be more than a symbol uh, of how the United States is perceived around the world. Um, and it continues to be costly and dangerous and difficult. And I think that that's the price of admission uh, to, to leadership in space. And it's one that I certainly feel, I won't surprise you at this point by saying this, I certainly feel that it is worth, worth the price. Um, but that will continue to be a debate in the face of other really pressing priorities right here on Earth. Mm -hmm. Now, one member, alert member of our audience has corrected me. It's been 60 years, not 50 years, so I apologize for my math. Uh, but to get to a couple of our audience questions, uh, the first one 
says there's a lot of space race TV programs that have come out in the last few years, Apple TV. Uh, what are your thoughts on knowing as much as you do about space history? What are you seeing in the, in, in the, the production of shows, you know, fictional that, that appeals to you and doesn't appeal to you? Well, I'll tell you one that I, I really like the, the most, and that is uh, the show called For All Mankind, which is on Apple TV+. Plus. I don't know if any of you have seen it, but it is a fantastic series. It's run two seasons now, and it's counterfactual history to a point. It, it starts with the premise that the Soviets beat the U.S. to the moon, and they plant the, the flag in the name of, of Marx and Lenin. And then it proceeds from there to imagine, well, if that had happened, what happens next? And how does President Nixon respond? And we move much more quickly into a kind of Cold War contest in space where both countries are building permanent installments on the moon, keeping an eye on each other, uh, always the danger of armed conflict. It's a fascinating projection of what could conceivably have happened. Um, and uh, it's, I think, brilliantly done. I enjoyed it a lot. And it carries it in the second season through the, the Reagan years. Um, I, I feel like the reboot of The Right Stuff, which is on, on uh, Disney+, Plus, um, is less successful. Um, and uh, I, they, as you might expect me to say, I, it's hard for me to watch it and not kind of pick it apart historically. They take a lot of liberties, um, big liberties, actually. They, there's a lot of invention of, of episodes that, um, to me, go beyond uh, the parameters of what you expect in something like that. Um, they're always going to have to make some stuff up just to make it work as a, as a drama. Um, but I feel like it goes a little bit too far. Mm -hmm. And another question, Peyton Decker, uh, SMU MBA students, we hear so much these days about returning veterans who are dealing with, with the post-combat stress. And here was Glenn, World War II, Korean War. Uh, did he have any issues with, with that as a uh, former military veteran who left the military to become an astronaut? You know, it's a, it's a great question. He does not seem to have had any anything approaching PTSD. You know, there were some tough moments, as you would expect. Um, he saw people die. He saw people fail out and wind up being taken uh, uh, prisoner by the North Koreans. Um, uh, you know, he saw, as, as anyone did in combat, he, he saw some awful things. But But to be honest, and he was honest about this, for a Marine pilot, the war up there, was incredibly fast and incredibly exciting. And if you survived and you shot down MiGs as he did, it was pretty thrilling. The Marines on the ground in Korea had a very different kind of experience, of course, famously. And so Glenn was spared of the, the, the worst of, of those sort of experiences. I mean, he had, and it's an awful phrase, but, um, but he had a pretty good war. Um, and that was true during World War II and, and in Korea. So he came out of, of those experiences. I mean, he came out of World War II wanting to do nothing more than to, to fly uh, combat in another war, uh, which he got to do in Korea. And his only disappointment in Korea was that the war ended too soon for him to get his, his uh, ACE status. You have to, I guess, get shoot down five planes to, to become a flying ACE. And he shot down three and then he ran out of time because the armistice was declared. And so, and he was disappointed about it. He wanted, you know, he wanted more time. So that gives you a sense of his perspective. He was not writing long letters home about uh, how miserable he was. That's for sure. Right. 
Well, Jeff, we want to say thank you for your time and want to respect everybody's schedule. We were coming right up here on, on one o'clock, but Mercury Rising is the book. It's, it's a great read, as you would expect. Anybody who's been a speechwriter to the president is obviously very good in uh, putting sentences and paragraphs together. Uh, and so thank you for the research that went into this book and the, and the way you tell the story. And, you know, for people my age who sat in the third grade and watched John Glenn on the black and white TV set and you know, grew up, saw the men on the moon. It is so much fun to relive this history. So, so thanks for the effort and good luck in whatever your next book turns out to be. Well, thank you so much, Talmish. Thank you for, for all of your kind comments. And thanks to all of you for your questions. Uh, this has been a lot of fun for me. And uh, I'm just grateful again to all of you for, for turning out in the middle of the day. And, and uh, I, I appreciate your, your interest in the book. Okay, Jeff. Have a great day. And uh, we'll talk again later. Thank you. All right. Thanks so much. Take care. After reading Jeff Schessel's fantastic new book about John Glenn, John F. Kennedy, and the Mercury astronauts, it sure brought back some great memories of the sense of excitement and unity the country had during my childhood in the early 1960s over the space program and the race to the moon in the midst of the Cold War. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. Make sure and catch all my podcasts at Spotify, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Until next time, remember, as my late great friend Bobby Bregan used to say, you can't hit the ball with a bat on your shoulder. This is Talmadge Boston of the law firm Shackelford, Bowen, McKinley, and Norton. Thanks for listening.